0: such as marketing, sales, innovation, or funding that is absolutely critical to the growth of companies, whether they are startups or corporate global players. Where management needs to juggle the challenges of market entries or knowing how to navigate the uncertainty of disruptive developments, mind-feeding is where clarity evolves and helps solving organizational challenges for those who listen to the entire episode i have a special surprise gift i'm also working on some great guests that are industry leaders in management innovation and marketing and we will be talking in the future much more about the important trends that are affecting the way we manage our companies in the demand to being sustainable, more environmentally and socially friendly, and becoming more empathic leaders. So, let's get started on today's topic. Hello, and in today's topic, we are going to be talking about B2B startup sales strategies. With me is Zoltan Vardy, and uh, he's based in London and travels back and forth, as I understand, between London and Budapest. So, Zoltan is a startup mentor, trainer, and speaker who helps B2B tech founders build predictable recurring revenues. And scale the sales globally by applying his business development blueprint called the Launch Code. Zoltan, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself before we actually go into our topic?
1: Yes, absolutely, Christian. Uh, you know, I, I focus my efforts as a startup mentor really on business-to-business tech founders who who struggle with selling, who are uncomfortable with selling. And, and understand the importance of, of generating a, a predictable recurring revenue stream in order to scale their business. And I do this by teaching them effectively how to focus and structure and scale their sales and marketing activities. Um, I think my approach is somewhat unique uh, based on my background, which is kind of a combination of two very distinct mindsets. First, I bring a very structured and, and experienced approach based on closing over $2 billion worth of business-to-business deals in my senior corporate roles uh, and major media companies uh, uh, for one portion of my career. But I also understand the execution challenges of entrepreneurs because I've actually built and sold my own company. Um, I've had successful exits as a founder, as an angel investor. So I I think I get that mindset as well. So I really try to combine those two worlds, um, the best of those two worlds into one approach.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, um, looking at B two B startup sales strategies, um, usually um, tech founders are usually often either have hardware, software, or they have SaaS solutions, and on. Um, I suppose uh, it's a broad band of people who come to you.
1: Yeah, you know, I I tend to focus on on um, business to business. Services or SaaS products mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that are are easily scalable. I think that's that's something that's that's critical because I do work across multiple markets and and, and on a global basis. Um, but you know, I think I think the the common theme, uh, independent of what your product or service or even industry is, is really that you know a lot of founders have a real difficult time understanding that while they're very passionate about the product that they're selling. Um, or that they produce, they don't really understand the importance of selling it and marketing it, and, and I think that's a very important gap that exists. And, and so they often struggle with explaining why customers should actually buy what they're what they're selling, or you know they don't have a sales process in place to find and attract the best prospects, or or they kind of lack the ability to set targets and, and track their performance. So a lot of these basic elements, which which, once you've been in the in the sales and marketing world for a while, are natural uh, are are quite uh, quite uh, different. And so, you know, when I started um, working with startup founders um, after a, a twenty year kind of career in the corporate world. I I realized that oftentimes they defaulted to to one of two stale strategies. One is the, what I call the, I know a guy strategy, right? That's when, you know, you, you basically reach out to your uncle's friend who happens to have a business in such and such an area. And so, you know, I'm sure they'll do business with us or, or, you know, I once ran into a guy at a conference and, you know, I'm sure we'll do business. Right. So it's a very much a very networked, personal approach. And on the other hand, you've got um, founders who really reply uh, rely on this, what I call spray and pray approach, right? They send out a thousand emails and pray that somebody will answer. I don't think either is particularly effective um, and scalable. And so what I realized is that founders needed some sort of simplified, basic sales and marketing blueprint that they could follow in a very technical way in the same way that a lot of them are very technically focused and so that's what i did was i kind of took all of the the principles the tools the techniques that i had learned through you know closing over two billion dollars in sales and packaged them into the system that i call the launch code and and i started sharing that blueprint through personal mentoring programs through group workshops and and you know an on-demand course as well and so i'm very proud that after a couple of years over a thousand hours of mentoring with two hundred founders in twenty-five countries, um, they really mm-hmm. understand the benefits of of, of this approach of, of how to really become good at business-to-business selling.
0: Yeah, because it's uh, very different than uh, to selling to consumers, and especially because uh, different things involved, like decision stakeholders and other people. Absolutely, a it's a very consumer, compl- complex just, process. Yeah, yeah, the consumer just need to find the the pain points, and uh, yeah. Remove all the fears, uncertainties, and doubts, and then uh, you've got the sale. Yeah, it's only up to you then to actually deliver it properly and and get the money as well. That's of course one last <laughs> thing. But exactly. Sales people sometimes like to celebrate and say, "Yeah, I've closed them. I've closed them. Now I'm going to buy myself a Rolex or whatever." Yeah, uh, you haven't made the money yet. The money has come in. You haven't delivered yet. You it have, it, the it hasn't been taken over, accepted, and checked off. Yeah, uh, warranty time hasn't passed. There's nothing to celebrate.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know that also comes with experience, right? Once you've had enough yeah. of these uh, of these experiences, you realize that, as you said, the the deal is closed when the money is in the bank. But but to your point about B 2 C versus B 2 B, I think it's a very important distinction to make. So so business to consumer generally is is low value, high volume. Uh, type of selling right you're selling subscriptions for 20 30 euros a month um, mm-hmm. which in itself is is something that doesn't necessarily require a lot of personal connection or or, or or direct contact with your consumers in order to to make the sale that's a very different approach to to business to business selling where you're often selling very high value high ticket items or services in the tens and 20s and thirty thousand euros a month category uh, where you do require that 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 personal touch but personal, not necessarily physically personal, but also but but creating that, you know, that that chain of no like and trust, right? That's how people will, companies will ultimately do business with you, the first they have to know you, then they have to like you, and then they have to trust you. And it's only after that process that they actually go ahead and and, and make that purchase.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because you can you can even sell to people even at uh, like uh, 5000 miles away, you can sell them something for 50,000 pounds or whatever, it doesn't matter or dollars. Uh, but if they don't trust you, then it doesn't work. And sometimes, from my experience as well, sometimes the trust has to be built by uh, getting actually to know you physically. I mean, uh-huh. meeting someone, even have a having a coffee or dinner or something together is, is enough to actually build the trust because you get to know the other one. Yeah. in such a normal, typical environment where you have a drink, you have a conversation, see how the person treats us with other people and so on, and you know. Yeah. what's the real attitude and the real values
1: well you know it's unfortunately one of the the drawbacks of this new hybrid world in which we live is that a lot of these mm. personal uh, connections have have no longer are no longer at the forefront of the sales process right so people are making decisions mm. on a lot uh, less personal contact but much more of impressions and so that's where a lot of the things that um, you know that i talk about with my uh, uh, um, clients and in the, in the, the founders that i support is the importance of building you know that that um that brand in your online space on linkedin on facebook and whatever you know social platform where you where you kind of build that authority in that area that you're that you're operating in and so people get to know you and then they they can you know then follow on with a specific uh inquiry
0: hmm. absolutely
1: you, you know one of, one of the customers i work with is actually a german company um they're in the agricultural technology space and and that was an interesting uh, uh experience where, where they're selling a very high ticket service to to crop producing companies. And and they realized that to reach their customers, they really needed to develop closer relationships. So we worked with them to organize a series of events where the decision makers were invited, they would get meaningful, valuable information about their industry, but it also got to know the company and then it was an opportunity then to follow up. And so, you know, these kind of somewhat old school methods, I think are still very important, even in the, you know, technology space.
0: Yeah, especially when it's uh, something that you, that maybe the one who's actually buying has to feel comfortable with and isn't feeling that if it's a wrong decision, they might even lose a job. Because nowadays, of course, it is much easier to fire people, even in Germany, to fire <laughs> people when you don't like them, or or you can motivate them to leave by yeah. put them in some location which they hate and eventually will start uh, deciding to move, or you find a different opportunity. It's not like uh, 50 years ago where you started in a company and you retired at yeah. the end of your time in that company. Well those well, people have worked in 20 companies.
1: Well, you know what that reminds me of an interesting, you know, the 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 that 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 push towards certainty, right? Which is effectively mm-hmm. what what this is all about, about about protecting your role or protecting your job is is what really um determines a lot of the conversations that that startups have with big companies, right? With big corporates. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I think um you know I often talk about how how you know the challenge there is really the fact that the the two sides of that equation that the corporate customer, the enterprise customer and the startup come at the world and look at the world in two very, very different ways. Right. And, Mm. and, and if you think about it, you know, um, having worked in the big corporate world for 20 years myself, I know that the absolute key motivator for a corporate decision maker is certainty, right? The entire corporate infrastructure is built around the concept of, you know, scenario planning and projects are all budgeted and, you know, have meetings to have meetings about meetings, you know, that kind of mindset um, it results in very slow decisions uh, and, and sometimes frustrates startups who, on the other hand, are extremely speed focused, right? It's about going to market quickly. It's a priority. And, and that clash of different um, mindsets, I think, is what often results in very frustrated founders who don't understand why they can't just close a deal with a big corporate customer. But there are tools and tricks you can use to, to move that process forward.
0: Yeah, it's a bit like even it's even worse for selling to government. That uh, gets you even <laughs> crazier. Uh, well, yeah. But when you're used to 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 corporates and so on, you know how corporates work inside them. Um, yeah, you try to just focus and not go crazy. But uh, yeah, and sometimes corporations sometimes make decisions as well for certain crazy uh, reasons. Where you think, uh, okay, so that's your reason why you're doing business with us.
1: Okay, I uh-huh. uh-huh. think. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think, I think those are, (laughs) those are, are, are typical situations, but, but I think the way to get around Mm -hmm. that, and I talk a lot about this with my, Mm -hmm. uh, my, with my, uh, colleagues or my, my my customers Mm -hmm. is you have to know to target the right corporates. Um, you know, not all corporates are created equal. And there's a certain characteristics, I think, that, that you have to look for when you're targeting certain enterprise customers. And the first of those is, I like to see you have to hunt for deer and not elephants. And what I mean by that is, elephants are obviously these massive, lumbering, slow moving organizations that have, you know, very long sales cycles and decision making cycles. But there are challengers, I call them deer who are who are sort of in that second or third position in their particular vertical, they're much more open to innovation. They're much more open to trying new things because they have something at stake, right They have something to, to, to win if they are, if they're successful. And so focusing on those deer as a first step is, is a very good uh, um, uh, um, area of focus. The second thing I would say is generally speaking, um, early stage companies should target companies that are privately held and not publicly owned. And the reason is, is because, you know, publicly traded companies have quarterly uh, targets to hit. They have quarterly releases to the public markets. Their risk for something going wrong is like 10x versus private companies. They have, have more breadth of movement. They're willing to test and invest in, long, in, in the long term. And so I think those two categories already will help you narrow your focus on the companies that you, you speak to at the enterprise level.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because it's uh, when you think of corporates, of course, you always think of the big companies, but uh, smaller companies still with uh, 5,000 or 50,000 and they employees and don't necessarily have to be on the stock market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're still huge. And when you get them as a client, it's a fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. And, yeah, it's, it's a wide range of opportunities. hmm
1: yeah. But I think it's having that mix of, of customers as well, right? It's it's important that you don't put all of your eggs in that single basket of big corporations because then you end up doing you know one deal a year and, and sweating bullets until you get to the end. If you have that mix of, of smaller deals, what I call rabbits, which are the small limber companies that are doing deals quickly, have a collection of those, You know, we be we hunting for a few elephants and then have a majority mm-hmm. of your business in those deer category. That combination of customers is going to give you the best shot at building a a recurring revenue stream, um, because you'll always have something in the pipeline that's going to, that's going to convert.
0: Yeah. And um, talking of challenges, so how would you characterize, uh, a, let's say a startup wants to find the challenge and thinking, oh god, fine. Okay, privately hold. But who, how do I really identify this challenger? Uh huh. Well, I think the first step you
1: have to do is you have to, first of all, very clearly define your value proposition. And and this in itself might seem uh, quite obvious, but so many companies fail to do that, right? They don't take the time to determine, you know, what problem they solve for who and why they're better than the competition. And I think that process of creating a very simple, easy-to-understand value proposition is really powerful. And I'll give you a specific example. I worked with a company um, not too long ago that uh, that sells kind of a database migration solution to, to, to financial services companies. And, mm-hmm. and the founder there was telling me how you know he had the most difficult time trying to explain to his potential customers like what it is they do. And so we worked together a little bit and I have this kind of process of, of how to create a single-sentence value proposition that even a 12 year old will understand. And he went off to an industry conference where he met a lot of these people and he had these individual conversations and he calls me, you know, after the conference, really excited. He said, you will not believe like I was, I was able to explain what I did in like 10 seconds and people actually understood and, 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 you know, they understood what I was saying and they asked for follow-up meetings and so on. So, so that kind of simplicity of communication is I think a very first step to identify, you know, these, these deer, you know, who is it that is going to understand what you're saying? The second step, is creating a very clear understanding of who that ideal customer is. And, and, you know, you can really dig deep into the parameters, right? I mean, there's empirical numbers like, you know, size of revenues, geographic location, number of employees, anything that could be relevant for your particular industry. But there's a mm-hmm. lot of soft things, right? There's a lot of things about, you know, are these company is this company um, something that, you know, are they open to innovation? Do they have an accelerator program, for instance, or do they have corporate venture capital? Already, those are going to be, uh, you know, elements that indicate they're open to, to innovative uh, areas I know that's a, something that you focus very much on is innovation and so getting that combination of clarity of, of message and then getting a very clear understanding of who your uh, customer is is the start of I think a very structured sales process
0: oh, yeah and uh, from then there um, how would you then proceed once you have happened to to identify this uh-huh. potential?
1: So, so, so so the process I would proceed with is um, based on that ideal customer profile, you can then identify um, up to let's say 50 companies that match that profile. And and, you know, there's so many Mm -hmm. sources of information, Uh, a simple Google search, industry conferences, uh, brochures, um, even your personal network, your professional network, right? I mean, you can start putting together a list of these companies that match that criteria. The next Mm -hmm. step is then to find individuals who could be in decision-making authority at these companies. And of course LinkedIn is a fantastic source of information for that. Again, you can do your searches. And and so what you're doing then is you're doing these kind of top 50 companies, you're identifying the decision makers. In some cases you'll have multiple decision makers, in other cases you won't find a decision maker. And what you'll actually do then is you'll find that person who you need to get in front of and I think that's where the, you go from the science to the art of selling. And, and, and I think I personally very much believe this is, again, in order to get somebody to pay attention to what you have to say, they have to know, like, and trust you. And so you have to find that, that connection with that potential customer that is going to make them listen. And that connection could be any number of things. Um, you know, he, here you are with a British-German background. Obviously, if you're speaking to a decision-maker in Germany, being German in itself is not necessarily a point of difference. But if you're talking to a decision-maker in Latin America as Germany, who happens to be German and you're German as well, that obviously already is a connection there, right? You, you get in their comfort zone. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this yourself in your own in your own work. Uh, Christian.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. And the I mean, same thing as well, like with people like uh, for instance, I had once a client who came to me and, and then he said did you go to, uh, to this and this school? And I'm thinking uh, how do you get this idea? <laughs> no. Yeah, because you, you use certain certain pronunciations, certain wordings and so on. Really? And I'm looking at uh, mischievous and so I'm thinking what's he going on about? And, and is <laughs> high level <laughs> in one of uh, one of the big uh, uh, companies in Germany. Right. And uh, I said to him, Yes, actually, I did go to one of these schools. And he said, Yeah, his daughter went as well in Mexico. And ah, I thought, OK. And, ah, and he explained, Yes, because before, of course, they all teachers were coming from an area of Germany, a right. certain area. And since then, of course, after unification, they suddenly switched them over and then all from. Uh, area of Berlin were coming and go, having the opportunity to go and teach at those schools. And only they had the opportunity. right? And that's how, of course, uh, you can practically identify the people. And that's why people always before often told me, do you come from Hamburg? And I thought, huh? I've never been to Hamburg at that time. Always <laughs> Now I've been twice to Hamburg in my life. Uh, but uh-huh. uh, before I was thinking, it's crazy. Even, even a UPS guy said to me, are you from Hamburg? And I was like, no. <laughs>
1: Well, I, I think the point is here that you can create that connection with somebody, even on a exactly. small thing. But but the, you know yeah. the other thing you can do is obviously look for common common um, uh, connections. Um, yeah. You can look ask for referrals. If you know obviously the the best way to get into a decision maker, if you can have somebody introduce you, right? If they just simply connect yeah. you online and they say, "Hey, here's so and so. They've got an interesting proposition. You guys should listen um, to this." Already, you've created that initial. Um, you know, you've gotten into their comfort zone. And, and and I think once you do that, you'll ultimately create, in my mind, sort of a top. 10 list of potential targets of potential customers. And that's a target list that's constantly going to be evolving as you go out and you you start the sales process. Some of them will fall out, some of them will come in. But having that kind of structured approach, I think is really, really important. Um, And it's what's going to lead to this type of high ticket enterprise sales that that's going to ultimately have a a significant impact on your business and and that kind of structured approach is something that i would very much um, you know i think a lot of a lot of early stage companies lack right they don't have that sort of structured approach and i think that's something that that um, you know that that mindset has a huge impact on the effectiveness of their of their up on sales efforts
0: yeah exactly and especially getting that connection and not just uh, blasting out emails because when you look at linkedin you get uh, so much spam that's totally irrelevant I once got an email from somebody where I thought, that has nothing to do with any of the businesses, <laughs> or n- not even with any of the business and things I ever did in my entire life. And I thought, yeah. how and, is this relevant? Yeah.
1: Point. And they probably called you Christina. <laughs> uh,
0: no, no, that, that, that didn't go so far, but... Uh, It was something that was absolutely irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. uh, I wouldn't even imagine of doing some kind of business or something in that area. Yeah. Totally pointless. Uh, And that's the thing. We notice it's just some machine pumping messages out and randomly and even so poorly that you think really – put in a little bit of extra, invest maybe one day extra and do the job properly.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I, I use this example of Christina because I have gotten uh, uh, cold emails addressed to Pam and Susan and you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. all these guys. So you kind of wonder yeah, what's yeah. going on. But I I think, and, and I'll be honest with you, this is a bit of a controversial view for me. So I am not a fan of cold emailing and cold calling. Um, yeah. I think it's a very, very high Effort, low return approach. And I get challenged on that a lot, by the way, uh, I mean, just kind of in the LinkedIn space. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I genuinely believe that if you're selling sort of uh, enterprise level um, services, you have to create that environment where people are going to actually know, you know, that you exist. So that, you know, that's the importance of, of regular publishing content on, on, um, um, on LinkedIn, of of going to uh, a situation where, uh, you know, you're going to uh, build an inbound marketing funnel as well. So people are discovering you, they're seeing your content, they're understanding what you're doing, you're giving them an opportunity to look and find you. Already, you see that, you know, the number of leads might not be as high as with cold emailing, but the conversion rate is significantly higher. I would say two to three times higher, at least.
0: Yeah, yeah, The only thing is that with LinkedIn is like with Facebook before and TikTok and so on. Uh, you practically, uh you go down with your content nowadays in LinkedIn. It's got so rapidly exponential and when you post stuff. Um, it's the value of LinkedIn has gone really, really down. And uh-huh. the interesting thing is, um, a few a few years ago, I did a uh, letter. I sent letters out, and sometimes I sent as well pamphlets with other kind of information, but not just like the cheesy stuff. And actually, I actually got even replies, and I got even a, uh, what was, 8% response, and of those, I closed 95%, Mm -hmm. which actually is quite good when you think of it that normally that kind of stuff would usually get you one percent sure and absolutely. i'm sure that uh, even the content that we nowadays are generating for linkedin and that's unfortunately i've written a book on linkedin and stuff mm-hmm. and then i th- i see how things have changed massively um where you then really have to put up a lot of effort to produce a lot of content mm-hmm. and then there's at the end for certain startups that don't have the capacity mm-hmm eventually the realization, I'm pumping a lot of content and not seeing it. And I think there's a variety of ways to even get people actually to see this stuff. Even if it's online, there are ways to make people aware of it because the fact is many decision makers, maybe maybe they go once a week to LinkedIn. Yeah. But now with, if you get so many so much spam messages, you get fed up and then you don't go in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's look, counterproductive I, I, for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, LinkedIn, I think, is 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 a tool you can't ignore if you're into business yeah. business sales. Um, it's a question, of course, as how much effort you put into it and what the, what the return is. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. the exact st- st- statistic, but I believe that's still only something like. Two or three percent of LinkedIn members actually post regularly, so it's still a, a relatively small number. Obviously, it's a huge base of people, um, but I think if you can find that right balance, um, you know, not going overboard, um, you can actually build a lot of, 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 of uh, knowledge and trust, and, and you know, build that experience of of people understanding that you are an expert in something, right? Because at the end of the day, let's be honest, an overwhelming majority of services are identical. In so many different areas, right? So, how do you differentiate yourself? You differentiate yourself by the simplicity of your communication, so that people understand what you're, what you actually, what problem you solve. And you differentiate yourself by building authority through the content um, that you produce, so that people, that could be your potential customers, uh, feel like, well, this guy knows what, or this woman, or this guy knows what he's talking about, or she's talking about, right? So, there's kind of that trust uh, element there. And I think that's a, you know, that's a great way to do it. Obviously, LinkedIn is just one way. Um, you know, if you produce a regular newsletter, you're offering, you know, valuable content to your to your list of subscribers. That's also very useful. Um, you know, all of this is kind of the long tail. So there's there's quite a bit of effort into it, but it, it pays off in the end.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's the same thing like with search engine optimization. And so on. people eventually will search you as well and want to see what are you online doing and so on. Yeah. Outside of LinkedIn and that. Uh, there are as sort of things that you can always do to add things because, uh, yeah, sometimes big corporations even just simply go and Google something because they need a solution and they don't go to LinkedIn maybe because suddenly there's this emergency and then they find you and they see, hey, you've solved my problem. I yeah. like you and I stick with you. And that's the yeah. thing. Uh, large corporations, are, as you said, sometimes quite slow. Sometimes they're fast, but sometimes once they've got you and they know, okay, this works, they stick yeah. to it.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
0: Unless you've got some crazy person in there that has some other foul play in the idea, but yeah. most of the times uh, they're quite uh, reliable.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well. To, to your point, I think one of the things I often uh, emphasize in my, my work with, with founders is the importance of having high-quality online content in uh, native English and and, and yeah. underlying native English, right? Because a lot of companies, I mean obviously companies in the UK and, and like are not going to fall into this trap, but but you know a lot of the companies in some of the emerging markets of Europe um, will have founders who aren't native English speakers, understandably. And so uh, they, they will produce you know English language content which reeks of of misspellings and, and misuse of words and and all that stuff. And I, I can't yeah. tell you there's there's no better way to turn people off than, you know, if you're trying to get into the UK market and somebody Googles you and says and sees their website is full of, of of poor English. It's just going to make you seem unprofessional and unprepared. And so, I think very basic things done well is is critical to just just be on the map for for your international expansion plans for
0: sure. Exactly, because the human mind just tries to find for uh, find reasons why not to do business with you. Exactly. And I might even think um, maybe it's a scam website or any kind of <laughs> thing, which nowadays when you look at the scammers uh, uh, sending messages they're english or german or other languages (laughs) it's free of errors it's it's better than an english teacher (laughs) well i think wait a minute have they have they gone all to a new school and learned english german other languages or have they just been smart and hired some English teachers to write for them? Yeah, the <laughs> so yeah. Text is really, really good nowadays. Yeah. And well, obviously, obviously, uh, AI so.
1: also AI also makes it a lot easier to to, to draft yeah. uh, quality exactly. Quality Even criminals
0: are smart enough to use ChatGPT and <laughs> 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 it makes it better. <laughs> it's a different question. Exactly. Um, yeah, but that's the thing. Sometimes it doesn't always necessarily make sense, and that's the thing. People read as well and read to, try to understand what you're writing there, and if it's difficult to understand and the funny thing is simplicity actually works in many other areas I, I had to write at the time i had to write several letters to a canadian court uh, on on a legal matter where i was needed as a given advice on it and actually um, based on those two letters the court decided to throw out all the evidence because they realized yep he's right it's all garbage mm-hmm. uh-huh. throw it out oh so that no must... it's garbage
1: uh-huh. that must have been a p- quite a powerful letter then
0: <laughs> yeah, it was powerful letter, but short. And the trick was, or let's say the key game of these things. And I'm sure with, you've seen in other things. Simplicity isn't just about how you use the words, but actually keeping short sentences precise. Or, yeah. or as the German lawyers would usually say, like hammering it in. Boom, 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 bum, yeah. boom, Boris, yeah. and so on. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I'll tell you, that's something that I, I talk about a lot. You know, a lot of the technical founders yeah. I work with obviously are, are are living in a world where everybody speaks that very technical language. And, yeah. and the reality is, look, you have so many messages bombarding you every single day. Um, you know, if you can't explain to somebody in eight seconds, you know, what problem you solve how you solve it for who and why you're better than the competition, you're just going to lose them. They're, they're one click away. And so I think it's really critical that you, first of all, communicate uh, very simply. The other thing is critical is to communicate with the customer in mind. You know, so many times, um, you know, I'll work with these companies and their entire website is about me, 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 me. This is what we do. This is why we're good. This is how we've done it. Nobody cares who you are. What they care about is what problem do you solve for them? And that fundamental insight is what drives good messaging, right? You you have to create a very clear picture of the desired outcome of the customer that you're speaking to, explain what problem they have, and then talk about how you solve their problem and give them a call to action. Don't talk about how fantastic you are because nobody cares until they understand why they should even spend time worrying about who you are.
0: Exactly. Otherwise, you can always just call your company Acme Laboratories. That's, <laughs> that's totally enough. I mean, exactly. everybody knows. Okay, you're the best. Fine, fine. But uh, that doesn't solve the the needs or the challenges and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It it makes it very important, and you know uh, a great example of this. I worked with a a company that uh, provides provides this kind of factory production auditing tool for automobile companies, and and you know they were typically communicating on their website in the way that you know their technology, their product, their team, Um, and then you know we really shifted that around and made it all about the factory manager and how you know they want to have a timely and reliable audit. For their systems, uh, that saves them time, and so we, you know, completely shifted the, the the communication to that. And what ended up happening is this company, which is based in Poland, ended up closing several new clients in Germany um, mm-hmm. by just by shifting its, uh, you know, their 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 communication strategy to become much more customer first.
0: Yeah, exactly, because that's the key difficulty, and often some let's say some tech companies are um, suffer sometimes from a bit too much academics yeah is totally in the academic field and i think they have to write it and, and the same thing you see as well sometimes in presentations they are so boring and so uh, naked in a way because you just have a jumble lot of text on the on the each yeah. slide and it's hideous it's nothing appealing instead of just reducing it to maybe three bullet points put a picture in it put a nice design to it and it's not have to be fancy and yeah. it looks already nicer, and I'm willing to look at it. I'm not tr- trying to find a binocular to be able to read the text. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, ev- even more, I mean, obviously there's, there's visual elements you can fix there, but I think that the structure of a good sales presentation is always problem, solution, how can we work together, right? Here's the problem we've exactly. discovered. This is what you probably are experiencing in your industry here's our use, here's our unique solution to this problem. This is how we brought it to life. And, and this is the process we can go through together to, to, for us to provide the solution for you. It doesn't have to be more than 10 pages. Uh, It shouldn't have a lot of text, just that structure of problem solution. How do we work together is going to get you 90% where you need to go to, uh, to, to get a, a meaningful conversation started.
0: Exactly, because then as well, the, the customer or the client then knows, okay, you know what you're doing, you know, step one, step two, step three.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You understand me, yeah. right? I mean, everybody wants to Everybody yeah. wants to feel like they've understood, right? Everybody. Uh, and, yeah, and, and
0: they want to know that you you know what you're doing and you're not messing about and you have no clue. Yeah. And even if you don't know how the solution at that time, but you have at least a process that's going to get you to the solution because certain things you, at first, you understand, okay, obviously this is this coming out of the machine. So uh, we need to find out what's the problem. And then you have to investigate and so on. But we'll do this and these things. And we go this step and this step and this step. And then we'll do this and this. And then we'll find it. And then uh, we work out together to fix it. Boom. And everyone yeah. knows, okay. At least they're not going around like crazy uh, rats running around fighting everybody, just trying to find out uh, who did it. Uh, yeah. That's not the problem. That's not the solution. We want yeah. to fix the problem, not who did it.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned process. You know, process obviously is very important in in the way that you actually approach your customer and and you provide a solution. Process is just as important internally. And, and you know, one of the things that I've I've discovered in a lot of these early stage companies is that th- there's there's no there's no uh, guidelines for execution, right? Everything is an ad hoc situation. And so, you know, one of the things I, I try to do early on is, is like, just like guys, let's decide what good looks like. What are your goals? What are your long-term goals? What are your midterm goals? What are your short-term goals? You know, what KPIs, key performance indicators are you going to use to track your progress? Um, and then when you actually have those things set down, um, what you'll find is that you'll you're able to start tracking your performance. and I think that's so critical, right? Because most uh-huh. a, a lot of entrepreneurs are very intuitive, right? They're the, that's the type of that's their nature. And so they make a lot of decisions based on gut feeling. But once you have a clear set of objectives that you want to reach, Once you've identified how you will track your progress, you can look at the data and make decisions based on data and not on gut feeling. And I think that's a really important thing. And that goes for, you know, when you're, you know, how many leads have you generated? You know, how many of those converted into conversations? How many of those converted into deals? You know, how long is the sales cycle? There's all sorts of data that you can track in a simple Excel, you don't have to go into these very sophisticated online tools. Just start tracking that. Get into that habit. You know, I work with a company that um, um, that has a streaming service that helps sports teams to 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 stream their. Um, their uh, games uh, to, Mm -hmm. to, to to fans and, you know, they're typical entrepreneurs, you know, they're going headfirst into the wall. And, and, you know, we sat down and we said, look, guys, let's put together these goals and let's set up this performance tracking system. And, you know, how many leads do you have? How many opportunities? What's your financial outcome? What's your average uh, value per customer? All of these very basic things. And, and all of a sudden they find themselves making, you know, much better decisions because they're using data rather than gut feeling to, to get to the outcome
0: exactly and sometimes it's good as well to even uh, be with them when they're doing certain conversations and so on with potential new customers to find out if they are saying certain things that are let's say counterproductive just because they think they have to say it and it's absolutely not even demanded by the client but they're just saying something stupid that's putting off the client and uh sometimes it's good like i once had a an a marketing advisor he then uh, put a paper on my beside my desk and it was like the the door stopper so to say uh don't say these things ah uh-huh. okay <laughs> i used to say them just because uh, i don't know why i just did them uh-huh. for whatever reason it was somehow uh subconscious uh uh-huh. consciously done and yeah i don't do them nowadays i don't even right. know anymore what they were but i don't do them
1: well i guess he did a good job of making you forget then
0: <laughs> yeah exactly and that's the key thing he was quite good in that definitely right. um but that's the thing you do you know, see these things and and it's so funny because i just recently we started a new uh, business area um a few months ago and first thing i did as well when we were working with our ads guys uh i created an excel sheet uh, or google sheet and then wrote all people from coming through the website, coming through uh, ads and so on for this and this area and so on, how many are being sold, how many are this and that and so on. So easy. And as well, giving feedback as well to the marketing guys and the ad guys so that they know, okay, ah, this this kind of people we're getting. And I said, hey, wait a minute, you're targeting obviously the wrong age or the wrong group of people and so on. And giving them constantly feedback, which they were not used to because mm-hmm. they thought it's a black box. It's not a black box. We can we see people coming through the door, even if you've got a physical shop, and a shop. People are coming in. And you're finding out: okay, am I attracting the right people, mm-hmm. or not? Or am I attracting tire kickers and so on? Yeah, that's the wrong approach. You're offering the wrong thing. Yeah, and, yeah. And sometimes they think: oh, but the others do that as well. Just because they do it, it doesn't mean they're smarter.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned this this question of, of customers and you know, tire kickers and not and so on. It's it's interesting how you you can. What I found is as you as you build your business, you start out with a, a relatively broad understanding of who your customer is. And uh-huh. as you progress forward, what you start realizing is that certain elements of your assumptions are incorrect. And generally speaking, you end up focusing more and more and more um, until you ultimately decide that there's like this ideal customer who is the perfect um, you know, profile for what I I uh, I'm selling, and I always tell my 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 clients. I said, you know, the goal here is not to be everything to everybody. It's 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 the goal is to be the perfect solution for that one problem, for that one person. And and as you go through that process, it's always about focus, focus, focus. And and you know, that's when you sort of know that you've got it right, or you're heading in the right direction, is when you start seeing your sales conversations faster um you know less, fewer objections you know the process goes much mm-hmm. more smoothly and you start really taking off and that's when you can really build traction and achieve you know the 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 uh, the ultimate outcome of any sales process which is product market fit right where you've got that sense of of that
0: perfect fit exactly and then the people as well uh they have uh, less problems as well with your product because they're fit and they're not yeah. it's like trying to sell somebody uh tires for big trucks when they actually they have a small delivery vans, it just doesn't fit. <laughs> exactly, it just doesn't it fit. work. Exactly. Yeah, but exactly. you could close them, and they say, "Oh, super! I got 5%. Like I. when I did training, uh, when I was left school, I did an apprenticeship <laughs> with BMW, and the first thing in logistics they taught me: don't ever order based on discounts. And why? Because one guy once ordered one million rubbers. And uh-huh. we have still not used them all up. <laughs> oh my god! Well, you got you got at a great I deal, thought, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought at the beginning, when well, I mean, oh, you can use them, but eventually you start thinking, when well, i minute, mean, how many? I still got have got my rubber that I used to have in my pencil case uh, from school, and I haven't used it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they still got at least half a million still somewhere uh, lying like around somewhere, not being used to. Yeah. 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 And they may be trying to please take that rubber with you. We need space.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it work. But 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 you know what what's interesting is is oftentimes what I'm what I'm um mm-hmm. uh challenged with on this is is, well, you know, what if we don't, you know, if we narrow our focus on our customer, then then we're going to lose out on certain, you know, other types of customers.
0: Yeah. And, and get fear of, of missing out.
1: Fear of missing out. And I, and I think that, you know, my experience, having worked literally with, with a couple of hundred different companies in this kind of business to business tech space is that actually the opposite happens. Um, you you end up communicating the perfect message for the perfect customer and you're able to close much more business much more quickly because there's no noise there, right? You're not asking people to kind of, well, he can't, they could do this, but they could also do this. You know, they do this, you know, if you're good at everything or if, you know, mm-hmm. everything, obviously in quotes um, it just kind of implies that you're not an expert in anything. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important that you, that you really, really focus on what you're good at for the right customers. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, so I'm actually chairman of a company called Ontavo. Ontavo is a uh, is a scale-up business at this stage. They, uh, they're a loyalty uh, management platform for enterprise mm-hmm. um, they basically help big companies put together loyalty programs and and uh, and, and at the beginning of their journey they really were uh, a one-size-fits-all type of service provider they provided consulting they provided for unloyalty programs they provided all sorts of back office support they did the technology mm-hmm. and and as they evolved they realized that what they were really 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 good at was the technology their platform was fantastic its usability its universe its ux that's where they were really great and so what they realized is they they had to find partners You know, consulting companies who are experts in loyalty who would actually pre-sell, you know, the concept of loyalty to their end user, and then they would bring in Ontavo as their technology partner. And the minute that they shifted there, and they realized what they were really good at, their business skyrocketed. And to this stage, their their global business with you know co- companies like BMW and KFC and and um, mm-hmm. and and you know big big brands around the world that are that are working with them because because they were able to focus on what they're really good at, and and that's been a fundamental shift that I think a lot of companies can learn from. You know, find your focus. Um, you know, as I like to say, choose your love and love your choice because that's going to build your your business.
0: Exactly. And then it's much, much easier to build it up. And uh, it's clear and you're not wasting resources on things that actually not going to generate any kind of revenue, or maybe it's a generated yeah. revenue, it's just going to uh, explode in your face. And then <laughs> exactly. you've lost the money again, you've got pain. And Agony and uh, unhappy clients, yeah, and you notice you've been selling the tires to the wrong people,
1: and, and who wants something to explode in their face after all?
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that's the thing. Sometimes, sometimes it even happens that you maybe have a client who at the beginning is the right fit, and somehow they change, management changes, and everything, and you really notice. Okay, the values have changed. I think they no longer va- matching our values. Uh, doesn't make sense anymore if you can't even. Yeah. Uh, face having them on your let's say on your list of good clients and so on or you can't properly do business with them because they're doing cutting corners and doing yeah. creepy stuff I think uh, no, no, that's going to hurt us as well in the long run because others will it, it, you know it's like with association um, what do you call it uh, branding by association and so on and if your brand is associated with negative things then eventually your brand becomes cre- uh, crappy Yeah, from once being great, now being uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Although to be fair, it can work the other way around, right? That's why you are collecting logos as you are building your business. If you have uh, you know blue chip logos around your service, then you you know people will believe that you you offer a valuable uh, solution because they see others have bought it before. So
0: yeah, uh, that's the the same thing with uh, with a big client of mine as well who uh, bought because a certain government authority is our client, and I once thought, okay, that's the reason. I was totally astonished, and the way they formulated as well uh, their decision, I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but they were the only ones who decided, but nevertheless, a great customer. I've had them for several years. So obviously, it was for them a good decision. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing you you sometimes don't expect corporates to buy for a certain reason. But if they buy it because you maybe put the extra effort before to get other clients, and then they see, ah, you have providing services to this and this and this client who are not easy to get They yeah. think okay if they went through all that process all that pain to go and buy from you then obviously it must be a no-brainer for us too yeah yeah absolutely yeah and of absolutely. course the more clients you have and more meaningful because sometimes it's where people know each other as well sometimes we'll, people will talk to uh, other people and they say hey how's experience with this and this company oh they're great we Super. And one key thing, even competitors speak with each other because, of course, people switch companies as well. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Actually, they know each other. They meet at events and say, oh, I'm having a great time and we've got this software. This is fantastic, great service and so on. And they say, oh, really? Hmm. So I think hmm, we should try yeah. it on. And then the other one, what? They've got it and they've got it. Then We need it as well. Yeah. Whereas they have the fear of missing out. <laughs> exactly the only well, one in the market who's left behind
1: yeah well i think that you know at the end of the day look that that's why enterprise sales makes sense for a large number of companies is because it's a hard road to walk but once you get to the end um the the riches not just financially speaking but in terms of the brand association can be quite great and for the exact same reasons you just described um you know you start creating that that air of of, um, of knowledge of experience around you that attracts new customers and so that's why I would very much encourage companies that are selling high ticket um, uh, solutions to 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 put a certain amount of effort into enterprise selling doing it right doing it you know being very focused on the way they communicate their offer message you know uh, being very structured in the way they sell mm-hmm. and and contact these customers and draw them in so they can speak to you know the most the best prospects and then finally execute based on on clear targets so they can make better decisions and reach the revenue goals.
0: Absolutely. So um, it was great having you here uh, on the show, Sultan. If people want to somehow get in touch with you, find out more on anything, how can they uh, get to connect with you?
1: So I would love to connect with business to business tech founders who are struggling with sales, who are not comfortable in that space, who want to build kind of predictable recurring revenues. They see the value of that. The first step I always take when I start working with uh, with founders is to share kind of a five-step process they can follow to create a very simple value proposition. So this is kind of the lowest hanging fruit because they experience the, the results immediately. So I wanted to share this process with your listeners. Um, just go to uh, my name, slash podcast, and you can access a free guide, free value pr- proposition video guide. And once they've seen it, they've done the, the exercise, and they feel like they want to learn more about what I can do and, and how I can help them, they can set up a one on one call. It's on my website and uh, and they can learn more about it. So uh, the address again is slash podcast.
0: Great. that will be. Wonderful. I'll add it as well into the comments so that uh, people as well can yeah. click on it. And, of, and that. of course,
1: they can connect on LinkedIn with me as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll add as well your LinkedIn uh, profile as well to it. So if people want okay. to use that. Um, yeah. So thank you for having been here. And yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking in future about similar topics.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Growth Zone show with Christian Barge. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review or rating here on iTunes or on podchaser.com. If you found the content helpful, then share it on social media, please. I would like to invite you to follow our show so that you don't miss the upcoming interviews with leaders in the market. Simply visit the website meetchrisbarch.com. I will be adding the link into the description of this episode so that you just need to click on that link. On my website, you will also find the links to free templates. If you're looking for the books I have published on marketing, innovative technology and sustainable business strategies, just simply click on publication to find my book list. The world is constantly changing in response to trends and events. As a business leader, you need to bypass the sandbanks that can hurt your performance. For those of you who are signing up to follow the show, I have reserved a few copies of my ultimate guide on content marketing and an ESG-compliant cheat sheet. This is the strategy that got me top corporate clients like McDonald's, Linde, Schulte Packard, Deutsche Bank, Volvo, and many others. That strategy has been working for over 10 years and also got me contacts with police, transport authorities, military, and several universities and even leading research institutes. For sure, it also worked wonders as it got me many small, medium-sized enterprises and international clients around the world. The link to sign up to our free broadcasting service and the guide is at meetchrisbarge.com. That will give you access to the most recent versions of my ultimate guide on content marketing. You can follow me on Twitter by using the Twitter handle capbarch. It's spelled C-A-P-B-A-R-T-S-C-H. Yes, that is C-A-P, Barge, or spelled Charlie